0: And like last week, uh, the team up here will read the whole chapter for context, but Pastor Matt will be focusing on verses 44 through 48 in his sermon. This is God's Word.
1: At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout to God and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision— he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, "Cornelius." Cornelius stared at him in fear. "What is it, Lord?" he asked. The angel answered, "Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea."
0: When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier Who was one of his attendants? He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean.
2: The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say.
3: Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. May I ask why you've sent for me?
1: Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is our Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached
2: The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is God's word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you so thankful for this privilege to meet, meet, to meet together as your body, to pour over your word, and to let it soak into our hearts. Father, I just thank you that we are here, and uh, we thank you for all that you've given to us. We just ask that you be with Pastor Matt today as he um, teaches from your word. We ask that our ears would hear and that our hearts would act upon um, the word that we hear today. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
4: I want you to put yourself in Cornelius's shoes. So it says Cornelius is a Gentile. It says he's a centurion leader, which means he's probably a non-commissioned officer. Uh, being described as a God-fearer means that he is very um, interested in the things of the Jewish faith, but has not uh, not committed to the law, not submitted himself to uh, the, under, under the covenant of stipulations. And yet, he has tried to be faithful, and he's prayed, and he's given gifts. This man is God-hungry. He's hungry for God. And then he gets this vision from God to call a person several miles away to come and speak to him, and he hears the name, Simon, a nice, good, Jewish name and yet it it sounds like while he sends the men out to call the simon peter to his house he has invited people into his home which to me shows great faith it says there's a crowd there by the time simon peter shows up so this god-hungry cornelius has a sense that god is coming to speak to him through simon peter And yet there's great risk here because it's possible his people go out to get this Simon Peter and they come back with no Simon Peter. No, no God-fearing Jewish man would ever come to your house. That could have come back. Or it could have come back that Simon Peter maybe would come outside the door. Notice you have this scene outside the door before he comes in. But he could have come outside the door and said, well, if all of you will come with me, to a a clean house or a clean place, I will then talk to you about God. But God shows at this time for the barriers that had separated the Jews and the Gentiles for centuries to end, because Simon Peter comes into this unclean Gentile home, and he preaches to him about a Messiah who didn't just die for the Jewish people, but has died for all. And in resurrecting, it says he is now the appointed judge over all people. And then this miraculous thing happens. While Peter is proclaiming, Jesus Christ is the Lord, he is the Savior of all people, it says the Holy Spirit falls on this crowd in Cornelius' home, and they begin to speak in tongues. And the Jews who are with Peter are going, oh my word, this just happened a few years ago on the day of Pentecost when the church began and the Holy Spirit came on Jewish believers in Messiah Jesus and they spoke in tongues. And all of a sudden the Jews in the room, they say this remarkable statement. Uh, (laughs) They're blown away. Verse 45, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. These unclean Gentiles are getting the Holy Spirit of God. They heard them speaking in tongues. They heard them praising God and so Peter says, surely surely no one no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They had been baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit, spiritually speaking. And so then Peter says, well then, certainly we're going to give them the sign of this baptism in the Spirit. We're going to baptize them in water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, and they ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then, I love this, they asked Peter, verse 48, they asked Peter, would you stay with us for a few days? Those early days in the house of Cornelius are world-shifting days because Jew and Gentile, they're worshiping the same Messiah. They're eating at the same table. They are a new family. They're worshiping, they are a new people. They're on the same mission of making disciples of all nations, all people. It is just glorious what happens here. And it's happened now for centuries that we go out, we proclaim that this Jesus who died in Jerusalem around 30 AD was a real person who lived in real history, who experienced a real death, who then had a real resurrection, and he's really the king. And so those who then submit themselves to him, come to him for forgiveness in his name, they will be saved. And when people are saved, we get them wet. Because... We're one family, and we all take the same sign. Turn with me uh, forward in the New Testament to what Paul has to say in his letter to the Galatians. So Paul is expanding on this House of Cornelius event, and he's reflecting on what happens when the Holy Spirit falls on all who trust in Jesus, and all of these who trust in Jesus are baptized what is going on here? And he writes Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. He says, so in Christ Jesus, so in a relationship with Messiah Jesus, through what Jesus Christ has accomplished, you all, he's a southerner, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ Jesus. You have clothed yourselves with Christ and then it says this glorious truth: there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are true children of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. Promise of Abraham. God comes to Abraham. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you can be a blessing. All those who come through Messiah Jesus can sing that old song, Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them. So are you. So let's all praise the Lord. So God does this great work through Jesus Christ to end this division between Jew and Gentile. We sit at the same table. We worship in the same house. We worship the same Christ. We're on... The same mission. If you turn back a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, again, Paul meditated on what is this baptism thing? What is it when God fills people with the same Holy Spirit, immerses them in the life with God through Jesus? What does that mean? First Corinthians 12 13, Paul says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. So the Holy Spirit falls on an individual person, but this is the thing I want us to know today. When the Holy Spirit falls on an individual person, and they have a personal salvation moment with Jesus Christ, It is personal, but it's never to be private because it now joins you to the corporate body of Christ. So just turn to the person that you're with and say, I'm stuck with you because of Jesus. I'm serious, do this. I'm stuck with you because of Jesus. And now say, you're stuck with me because of Jesus. This isn't what happens when Christ saves you, he brings you into a family. He brings you into a body. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12 it uses the it doesn't it's not just brothers and sisters. You are guts together. Right? It's not that you're just brothers and sisters like the person on your left is the liver and the person on your right is the left lung and the person behind you is a ventricle and someone, you know, it's the idea that you're 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 more connected than a family. You're a body. Organically made united through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We are stuck with each other. And when we receive baptism and when we extend baptism to those who have trusted Jesus Christ, we need to know what this means. Because Peter stayed in Cornelius' house, right? Something new had begun. It wasn't like, oh, we got them baptized, let's move on. No, we got them baptized, now we're family. I'm stuck with you, Cornelius. I'm stuck with you, Peter. I shared this quote with you last week as we're thinking about what is baptism. William Hendrickson uh, taught at Calvin College for a number of years. He refers to baptism, and he tells us this. It, baptism, is accordingly a sign and seal of our union with Christ. So we studied this two weeks ago, Colossians 2, we are united with Christ through the Spirit, and we symbolize that through baptism. Second, it is the entrance into a covenant, the new covenant. We looked at this last week, Acts 2, the new covenant, as the Holy Spirit would come down. But this week, we want to remember that it's also a sign and a seal of our incorporation into Christ's body, the church. If you receive baptism... You are incorporated into the body of Christ, which is the church. And yes, at one level, there is this universal true church of all people who profess Christ, both the dead and the living, right? The church, uh, the pilgrim church and the triumphant church, there is one church. But the church, in its healthiest form, all throughout the New Testament, it's lived out in local bodies. And so your baptism says, I'm with this body, or I'm with that body, And one of the beautiful things about Christianity for 2,000 years is what happens in salvation. And when a person understands it for themselves, and then a church understands it corporately, it begins to change the world. And this is why, for 2,000 years, wherever Christianity enters a culture, women are honored and given more dignity than they've ever been given before because we're one in Christ. Most cultures, women are, are chattel. They're property. In the kingdom of God, these are sisters. These are co-heirs. These are daughters of the king. And so when we are baptized into Christ, these women are co-heirs. Similarly, as Christianity moves throughout history, slavery erodes. Because we are one in Christ. Slave and free, no more, Right? And Christianity, as it gets into the heart of people, they see, I cannot treat a brother or sister that way. And hopefully they get to the point that I can't treat any human that way. That's what it means to recognize that when the Holy Spirit falls on all people, it makes them one, it makes them united. You see some of this happening in like the country of Afghanistan now, women are being educated They're being treated well. Children are being honored and protected. Children are being educated. And yet, if you get baptized in Afghanistan, incorporate yourself in the body of Christ, many of these lose their life. But they do it to honor Christ and proclaim what the Holy Spirit has done in them. I think a natural question would be to say, well, what about in America now? I'm not seeing this kind of cultural transformation. I'm not seeing this testimony of One in Christ in unity. And I wonder if it's because most of us think church is encapsulated in sixty to ninety minutes on Sundays. When you wake up tomorrow morning, do you recognize that person you were speaking to, I'm attached to you, is still attached to you? They're still your brother. Is there still a necessary organ for the functioning of the body of Christ? Do we skip the most central family in the universe for those non-central family events? Who is your family? Let's think a bit about baptism. Baptism. Think about it an individual, kind of personal aspect, and then kind of think of it as it, as it then relates to the corporate body of Christ. As a, as a person who has been baptized, or maybe you're considering baptism, when you receive baptism, you are saying, my old life is done. My old priorities are over. I am taking Christ and his mission And his priorities as my own. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, it is recorded in Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 27. His words He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple now those of you who are familiar with the bible know that jesus is not uh, instigating hate crimes on your family what he's saying is is your affections and loyalties and commitments to jesus so life-altering, so life-controlling, so life-dominating, that there are people that look at your life and say, well, they seem to not prize me enough. I know of a man recently that I was talking to about spiritual things, a non-Christian person, and he was um, telling me how frustrated he was with his mother. And I said, why? He said, well, my mom doesn't come to her granddaughter's volleyball games on Sunday mornings. She always goes to church. Now, that's a judgment call. I don't want to be legalistic, but that man knew that that his mom's loyalties outweighed her daughter's grandmother's volleyball games. And it got under his skin a little bit. I think our loyalties to Jesus should get under people's skin a little bit, that they see that there is a shocking life-changing life-altering commitment to our lord that other people squirm a bit because everything's calling for our time everything's calling for our affections there's people right now that are probably thinking more about what game is kicking off at noon than the king of kings and lord of lords there's other things that want our affections But do people see our loyalty to our Lord as so supreme that the other things, man, that person used to love football. They seem to hate it now. That person used to love cycling. That person used to love Netflix binging. But all of a sudden, they seem to hate it. And I think Jesus would say, amen, get that person baptized. That's my child. That's my son. That's my daughter. Now, let's think about it corporately, though. I want you to notice this little incident in uh, Acts chapter 10. You see the church on mission coming to a person who doesn't know Christ's home. They preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It falls in power through the Holy Spirit and then people speak in tongues and the evidence of the Spirit of God in their life is what makes Peter say, well, we have to baptize these people. God is at work in their lives. I want you to think about this in particular, members of Cornerstone Church. It is our responsibility as the body of Christ to herald who Jesus is and what he has done, the glorious Savior and Lord that he is, And when we see people repent, when we see the evidence of the Spirit of God in their lives, we should invite them, come and take the mark of baptism. But we also need to wait and observe and ensure that the person we are baptizing has been transformed. Otherwise, we could give them false hope. We could make them think that they got the magic water when they don't have the real Savior. I appreciate what Jonathan Lehman writes about baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, in his book called Don't Fire Your Church Members. This is your job. I don't want to fire you from doing your job. This is your job, church. Through baptism and the Lord's Supper, they, that is the congregation, they go on record affirming one another's profession of faith and membership in God's people, just like one goes on record by signing a check or a ballot, ballot initiative. When you, church, allow someone to be baptized in this church, or when you, church, allow someone to receive uh, the bread and the cup, you, church, are affirming to them, we see Jesus at work in your life. The first sermon we talked on this in this series on the, the responsibility of the church is to bind and to loose. To bind and to loose. This is from Matthew 18. We'll actually teach more on this in several weeks. But. To bind someone is to say, based on your beliefs or your behavior, I don't think you know Jesus. And so you would withhold from them baptism or you would withhold from them the Lord's Supper because you would not want to give them false assurance that they know the Lord Jesus. You would want to bind their conscience and say, let's wait. Let's look again at who Christ is. Let's look at what, again, what Christ has called you to. And to loose means to. Let someone come freely to the baptismal waters or let someone come freely and joyfully to receive the Lord's Supper, to affirm that what they believe and what they're hoping in is real and vibrant. And this is what the church does with these signs and seals. We're going on record as a body. And we have to do this carefully. If you turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. The Apostle Paul is trying to teach people about what it means to have assurance of salvation, assurance of you're ready for baptism or assurance of it's time to come back to the Lord's Supper. And he has both these sobering words and then these hopeful words. He says in verse 9, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and that is what some of you were. Amen? That is what some of you were. Were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, how does this work in the church? If someone were to come and say, Pastor Matt, or someone would come to you in your small group saying, I'm interested in baptism. What you want to hear is, and begin to ask is, tell me how God has worked in your life. How has God saved you? Tell me who you were before the Holy Spirit of God came and washed you and sanctified you and justified you. I would say, though, if someone says, well, I'm not sure, and you start asking questions and they're continuing to sleep with someone who's not their spouse, they're unwilling to repent from adultery, they're continuing to steal from work, I think we would slow down the baptism process and call them to know the Christ who does wash you, does sanctify you, and makes those things past tense. Because the good news of the gospel is God saves you from your sin. He saves you from its penalty, the death, it saves you from its power, that is its ability to control you, to keep you from obedience, and then one day you'll be saved from its entire presence. And so we want to be careful. Now here's the thing I want to warn. Like I want us to take baptism soberly and seriously, but I don't want us to become baptism scrooges either, right? This is the sign of entering God's family, not the sign of getting it all figured out. And so what we're looking for is a heart of sincere repentance. And if there's sincere repentance, they get wet. You don't say, well, I want to see this for a few years. I think that was actually, we actually talked about this at the elder meeting. This was a mistake of some of of the early church. They would make you wait like two or three years to get baptized. I don't think that's right. I do think there might be wise to maybe wait two to three days or two to three weeks rather than someone you don't know. You don't know if they've really repented. They don't know if they really believe, saying, I want to get baptized. Be like, wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's make sure. Let's not, mainly because I don't want someone to have false assurance if they're not really trusting in Christ, if they really don't know. Uh, I was thinking this week of using the, the a crib sheet, you know, a little, I don't mean cheat sheet. I mean like little useful tool, crib sheet. When is someone ready to be baptized? C, they've confessed Jesus Christ. R, they've repented. I, they have been indwelt with God's Spirit. And then B, get them baptized. And so look for these things. Have they confessed Christ? Has there been repentance? Do you see evidence of the Holy Spirit indwelt in their lives? If they have, baptize them and celebrate God at work in their lives. Some implications for us as a church. Uh, First, I want to encourage you, if you've come to trust in Christ, if you've seen God come in and begin to wash you, cleanse you, justify you, we would love for you to come forward to receive baptism. It will proclaim your union with Christ. It will proclaim that you are a part of God's new covenant people. It will proclaim that you are now incorporated into this body. I want to encourage us, uh, uh, you know, by the nature of church and the mobility of the world, as people will come in from different churches, I, I want to encourage us as members, like, let's not lose sleep on the mode of baptism. Uh, don't, uh, those of you who don't know this, like, there was already debates in the early, even in the first few decades of Christianity, about how you baptize. Like, do they go all the way in? There was someone in my small group, they were saying that they got baptized and their knee was still sticking out, so they would like, re-baptized them because there was going to be some rebellious apostasy of the knee if we didn't get this figured out. Um, As early as A.D. 110, there was a book called The Didache, The Teaching of the Twelve. I just want to read this to you. I think I have uh, the words on the PowerPoint, too. Uh, This is their instructions on baptism. This is within a generation of the apostles. They write, after you have reviewed all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if you have no running water, then baptize in some other water. And if you're unable to baptize in cold water, then do so in warm. Something spiritual about cold water in the first century. But if you have neither, then pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And before the baptism let the one baptizing and the one who is to be baptized fast as well as any others who are able Now this is in scripture but I just want you to see that the early church was already recognizing let's baptize people if you can get them all wet great if you can't pour some water on their head if you got cold water that's more spiritual but they're just here's the but here's the sign the sign is God has saved people, he's immersed them in the holy spirit of God, and now let's mark them as such people. Jesus is marching orders. Therefore, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them everything I have commanded you. And he says, surely I am with you to the end of the age. So keep doing this until I come back. I'm coming. Let's receive baptism. I also want us to think about as a church, as some of the implications of this uh, new family, like the new family between Peter and Cornelius and now us, is the idea as a body we must love one another. I know you've been in church a long time, you're like, I know. I don't know. I, I want you to know this week, I read just a few thoughts on loving one another, and I was convicted again about how I don't love you enough. And so out of my own conviction and now my own repentance, I just want to invite us as a church. Can we love one another? And I want to thank you for some of you, many of you in the room. It's your example of loving one another that shames mine. So I want to thank you for the people in this church that take the body of Christ seriously. You've sat with one another through cancer treatments. I love how many of you have helped pray for one another's children and you've helped raise one another's children. I know how you give rides to doctor's appointments. You help people move. I know that you're praying for the fellow family, friends, and coworkers who do not yet know Jesus Christ. You're praying by name for other people's opportunities to share Jesus. You're cleaning one another's houses. You're confronting, confronting one another's sin. You're serving in all manner of various capacities in this, in this church family. Uh, the different programs we do, and all sorts of things that we never hear about. I want to thank you for loving one another, and I just want to encourage us, let's love one another more. There's that command somewhere in the Bible. You, You find it. Outdo one another in love. That's the competition. We're not going to compete on who's the better Sunday school teacher. We're not going to compete on who has, you know, the hippest clothing. We're going to compete. Who loved the most? Let's get at it. Now, what's interesting, if you go back into the book of Acts, verse chapter 11. So just after this incident with Peter and Cornelius, Peter goes home. Chapter 11, verse 1. I love the sound of children. Amen? It says, verse 1, chapter 11, it says, The apostles and the believers throughout Judea, they heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. This is where unity is at risk. Do you see the risk of unity? The early Christian circumcised Jews start criticizing Peter. So, people, I want to be like the early church, just criticize each other. I'm just kidding. I'm just saying it's been going on for a while. And they say to Peter, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and you ate with them? And what Peter does, he just retells this story of God supernaturally saving a person far from God. And when he gets to the end of his story, the one that we've heard read, verse 18, chapter 11, it says, when they heard this, They had no further objections, and they praised God. And they said, so, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Even to the Gentiles. I'm guessing when I first became a Christian, someone said, even to Matt Proctor, God has extended repentance unto life. As a church, God is going to save all sorts of people that are going to shock you. He's going to save all sorts of people who are going to shock you. Most people were shocked when you got saved. They were just nice enough not to say it. But God will save people in shocking ways, and then he will bring them into the body, and we have a responsibility, like Peter actually does in Acts 11, and then fails later and gets rebuked by Paul. Let's see Galatians chapter 2. We need to fight for the unity of the body of Christ. We need to fight and defend those who have trusted Christ from wild backgrounds and say, God has saved that person, and they're part of the family, and they got the same grace that you did. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says something that really convicted me this week. Ephesians 4.3, he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And the thing that convicted me this week is we're supposed to make every effort for unity. I think most Christians just try not to be troublesome. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, don't try to not be troublesome. It says, I am to make every effort to find unity. So if, I, if my spidey senses go off, that there's disunity anywhere in the body of Christ, I am now responsible to bring unity. A lot of times, um, um, and I've been this, so I'm speaking to those who have struggled with me, it's easy to become a lightning rod for gossip. So, people will come to you, and you're this really nice, caring person, and that's good. Not if it's gossip, though, that's bad. We're not supposed to avoid gossip, we're supposed to end gossip. And so, how do we make every effort that if someone were to come to us with a, a tale, how do we make every effort for unity? How do we help that person reconcile? Help, how do we help that person do things right? I just encourage us to make every effort. First Peter 4.10. You don't have to turn there. You can write it down. Thinking about what do we do? If I'm a baptized person, I'm in the body of Christ. First Peter 4.10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So again, this week, just pray. God has commanded me to use my gifts to serve others. And this is in the context of your church family. Where are you using the gifts that God has given you to serve? Making every effort for unity? Making sure that I'm using what God has given me to serve. And and I want you to know, there are only so many programs that we do at this church. And so yes, participate in those programs, but it's much bigger than that. Right? We're serving. We want to serve people's hearts. We want to pray for them. We want to be in people's homes. We want to pray for people's workplaces. So don't let us not just look at programs, but please support those that we try not to have too many, we try to have appropriate ones. But how can we use our gifts? As we move to close, I want to read a a small section of Francis Chan's new book called Letters to the Church. Francis Chan is a pastor. He's out in California. And uh, here's a little bit about one of his church members. He says, One of the elders of my church, Rob, spent most of his life in gangs. He encountered Jesus when he was imprisoned and placed in solitary confinement. Today he is one of the most loving people I know. In fact, I'm not sure I know of anyone who loves Jesus and people as well as he does. Rob tells the stories of gang life and the fear he felt when he left his gang to join the body of Christ. To do this in prison can be suicidal. He had to make a serious break with his gang. And gangs are anything but casual about breaking those ties. But the Lord intervened to spare his life. It wasn't just the physical torture or death he feared. He dreaded the rejection by those he loved. The gang was his family. These were loyal and dear friends who looked on, for, uh, looked out for him 24 hours a day. There was a love and a camaraderie from being in a gang that he had enjoyed since childhood. Now he would lose those relationships and be hated by them all. Then Chan writes, when Rob describes gang life, much of it sounds like what the church was meant to be. Obviously, there are major differences. Drugs, murder, you know, little details like that. But the idea of being a family is central to both gang life and God's design for the church. Yet while we use family terminology in our churches, Rob's stories have convinced me that the gangs have a much stronger sense of what it means to be a family family than we do in the church. From what you know about gangs, could you ever imagine gang life being reduced to a weekly one-hour gathering? No group would meet briefly once a week and call that a gang. Imagine one gang member walking up to another one day and say, yo, how was gang? I had to miss this week because life has been crazy. We all know enough about gangs to know that's ridiculous. Yet every week we hear Christians asking each other, how is church? Something that God has designed to function as a family has been reduced to an optional weekly meeting. And this has become normal, expected. How in the world did we get here? Any gang member will tell you his homies have his back. They're there for him. They're loyal, committed, present. Meanwhile, in many churches, you have about as much connection to the people who are supposedly your spiritual family as you would to someone who visited the same movie theater as you. I just want you guys to know that Jesus Christ is the greatest gang leader of all time. And he looked at you thugs and he said, I'm going to die for them so that I can make them a part of my family with the Father that has gone on forever, a community of love and fidelity that will never end. And he invites this ragtag collection of people to take the mark of gang life by being baptized and then to live out what it means to be a gang for Jesus. To have one another's back. To be present. To be committed. To protect. To serve. To honor. To sacrifice. By this, all men will know that you are disciples of Jesus Christ. When you love one another, let us pray. Father in heaven, I first want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Somalia and Sudan and Pakistan, Yemen, North Korea. Some of the most dangerous countries in the world to profess the name of Jesus Christ. But these are our brothers and sisters. And we pray for their protection and their preservation and their ongoing commitment to making Jesus Christ known in dark places. I'm thankful for their faithfulness and willingness to gather as a church and to support one another in the, in the darkest places. Now for us, Lord, I pray that we would realize that the enemy that is attacking them is the same enemy we face here our enemy is Satan, and he is a prowling lion seeking to destroy. And sometimes he will destroy us with our comforts and our distractions and things not worthy of love and loyalty. And so I just pray by your grace as a church that we would love Jesus supremely and that we would love the things that Jesus loves, and he loves his church. I pray that we would love your church in such a way that the world would know that you, Jesus, are worthy of all. In Christ's name, amen.